If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, down to chapter 3, verse 1. Well, whether you want to believe it or not, we are over halfway through 2023. It is going quick. Before you know it, December will be here, and I personally cannot wait. I'm looking forward to cool weather and cold weather and Christmas and, you know, especially lately. It's been hot. Whew. It's been very warm. And so I'm looking forward to that. Maybe that's why people find the idea of Christmas in July appealing, as Adam mentioned earlier. And we're going to have a little Christmas in July this morning as the text focuses in on the theme of Christ's incarnation and the reason why he took on flesh, which we often focus on at Christmas time. And so this morning I want us to look at this text. And while unfortunately I can't do anything about the summer heat, hopefully this will remind us of those great truths we celebrate at Christmas and encourage us in this season now. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14, down to chapter 3, verse uh, 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would be with us as we study it together, or that you'd be with me, speak true uh, words of you to lift you up and lift Christ up and uh, we ask that your spirit would be at work convicting us of sin encouraging us in righteousness leading us into all truth and blessing us this morning through your word Father we ask that you would do this now in this time in Christ's name, Amen So last week as we started off this little series in Hebrews a very short uh, concise series we're not going to be able to go through the whole book unfortunately That's a very uh, dense and lengthy book. But last week, we opened it up with the beginning and discussed, in part, the three Old Testament offices that Christ fulfills, prophet, priest, and king. And the author of Hebrews points to these offices as types and shadows that showed to the Old Testament believers who the Messiah would be and what he would do. But the author of Hebrews is really going to hammer down and focus on explaining the significance of one of these offices in particular, in his book. While king and prophet both get some development, are important, more than any other book of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews really wants us to understand Christ as our priest. And not only our priest, but our great high priest. And this focus isn't because this office is necessarily better or higher than the others. Uh, They all provide vital things we need. As we talked about last week, Christ, our prophet, provides the revelation of God and guidance we so desperately need to know him and ourselves and the world. Christ, our king, provides for us and sustains his kingdom and defeats his enemies and our enemies. But the audience of the author of this book uh, of Hebrews was at a turning point in history. 
For millennia, the Levitical priests and sacrificial system had been the core of the worship of Yahweh, and now in Christ a change had occurred. It was necessary to help explain how this change was not unplanned for by God, but rather the natural fulfillment and end of what had come before. Just as when a young man or woman graduates school and goes on to better and bigger things, God's people had graduated from the old system of sacrifice to something better and bigger and grander. And they needed encouragement in that, just as uh, graduates might long for the routine and familiarity of school and need encouragement to embrace their new freedom and adulthood. God's people needed encouragement to leave behind the old ways and embrace their new freedom and maturity in Christ. And so he focuses on this idea of Christ as our priest. And you and I don't have the same cultural history that the Hebrews, the author is writing to, had. But even though we don't share the same temptations, I hope, to run back to the old sacrificial system, I hope no one here is sacrificing bulls and goats in their backyard, um, that doesn't mean God isn't speaking to us in this book. And hearing how the author of Hebrews addresses these concerns and lifts Jesus up as our great high priest, we gain a greater understanding of who he is and what he has done. Sweet comfort and encouragement in our own struggles and fears and a greater taste of the glorious and sweet things God has provided for us in this, our great high priest. And our passage this morning begins the author's uh, description of Christ as that high priest. He's going to spend many chapters uh, going into the Old Testament, proving how the Old Testament uh, bears witness to the supremacy of Christ's priesthood and what it means um, and how the Levitical priesthood was a good thing in its time, but just a pattern and a shadow. And again, unfortunately, we don't have time to dive into all the details of it, but it's a key part of the book and a helpful reminder to us as well. So this morning I want us to consider this passage and learn from the author's words together. My theme for my sermon is that God cares about and exalts humanity. God cares about and exalts humanity. And we're going to look at that and hopefully see that as we consider uh, the partaking of our nature, the priesthood of Christ, and the pondering of Jesus. And just as a warning, I have... The first point is a medium-length point, the second point is a long one, and the third one is short. So I know it's, you, it's hard to get them all consistent, and it's good to warn you ahead of time. If we get to the end of the second point and you're like, don't worry, it's shorter. Um, maybe that's a better, maybe not short, it's shorter. So <laughs> regardless, the partaking of our nature, the priesthood of Christ, and the pondering of Jesus. And so let's dive in. As I mentioned, my theme is that God cares about humanity and exalts humanity, which may not feel like a very controversial statement, but it is in many ways, or it can be. When we consider how many people view humanity and the facts of reality itself, um, it could seem at times like humanity isn't all that important or all that special. We might be moved to a high esteem of ourselves by our numbers. Eight billion people is a lot. Um, but that's by no means impressive. In 2009, 2009 there were an estimated 18.6 billion chickens alive. Well, surely chickens are the point of creation, going by numbers, but even that would be wrong because 18.6 billion is nothing. There's an estimated 50, uh, 500 trillion Antarctic krill swimming in the ocean. And even that pales in comparison to the 20 quadrillion ants in the world. 
for every one of us, there are 2.5 million ants. That's incredible to think about and terrifying to think about. Well, you might think that most of those are rather small. You know, we're bigger, but insects as a whole make up about 225 gigatons of Earth's biomass, the weight of all its organisms. (coughs) 225 gigatons. Well, humans clock in at a measly 0.06 gigatons. To quote one of my favorite authors, I love how he said this, insects outnumber us, they outweigh us, they outbury us, and they bite us way more often than we bite them. Surely, going by any objective and rational measure, when we look at what's the most important creature, what's the most valuable, it would be some kind of insect. Going by those standards... We're not the most long-lived. There are plenty of creatures that outlive us. The Greenland shark, for instance, can live up to 500 years. There's one I currently read about that's uh, been alive since before the American Revolution. We're not the fastest. We're not the strongest. We're not the most hardy, the most adaptable. We are arguably the most (laughs) intelligent. We are the most intelligent. But when we look at how intelligence is used, the good is certainly balanced or even outdone by the evil. We create incredible buildings and medicines and innovations to help people in this world, but we also create weapons of war and poisons and incredible ways to hurt and torture ourselves and other animals and other human beings. Is it any wonder then that the cultural temptation of the day is to view human beings as just another animal and an unremarkable one at at best and a nasty one at worst? There are even people who advocate and work towards the extinction of humanity arguing that it would be a net good for the world if all of us would just go away. But the worth of humanity is not in our numbers. It's not in our mass or longevity or strength or speed or our accomplishments or anything in and of ourselves. Our worth as human beings is in God creating us in his image and placing us at the top of his creation. It's because God chooses to care about us. When we consider the world around us and the heavens and the stars and animals and all the amazing, huge, and small glories, uh, we're right to wonder with the psalmist in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we? We really take stock of ourselves. Why would God care for us? And the psalmist gives an answer in verse 5. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It's not us. It's God. God has done this. God has placed his care upon us and given, exalted us to a special place. And the great proof of this, the supreme assurance of God's care and exaltation of humanity is seen in that he became one of us. My point says Christ partook of our nature. And we see that in verse 13, uh, or excuse me, verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God became a man. He partook of our nature. He shared in our flesh and blood. Which is stunning to think about. God the Son, the eternal, immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, the God of the universe who created all things, looked at us in our weaknesses and limits and needs and said, I'll be like them. There are many wonders to the incarnation, and theologians oftentimes will talk about it in terms of Christ's 
humiliation or him humiliating himself. And we tend to have bad or embarrassing connotations with humiliation, the word, but it simply refers to the lowering of oneself. And it certainly was a lowering. Because even though Christ became like us without sin, even a sinless, perfect human is nothing to write home about when you're God. It is a humiliation. You think of the incarnation and Christ becoming a human being. He had to have his diapers changed. He had to sleep. We read about him sleeping in various places. He had to eat and drink. He, he sweated. He hungered. He grew tired. He had to walk where he wanted to go. He was limited one place. He was limited in his knowledge as a human being. He was just like us. There's an interesting thought experiment often used in conjunction with the incarnation that I like. Could you travel back in time and beat Jesus in basketball? Or maybe, you know, maybe not you, but someone who's good at basketball, you know. I'm not very good. I don't know if I'd beat anyone. But could someone who's good beat Jesus? And the answer, I think, is probably because he was like us. He laid aside, we read in Philippians, he laid aside, he emptied himself. He became like us. He didn't rely on his own divinity. All that he had, he had from the Father and the Spirit because he lived as you and I live, which means if you had the knowledge and skill, you could have beat him at basketball in his humanity. He would not have won because he was a man like you and like me, yet without sin. And he was made like us not to live as a king in a palace, not to live as a pampered prince, not to live as only the greatest and richest live, but he came as the author of Hebrews says um, in verse uh, 14, to die. He took on our nature and with that took on the curse we inherited from our father Adam, not because he deserved it or because he inherited on his own, but of his own volition to let down his life, to willingly die and not for no purpose, He chose to die. He chose to become a human being with all our weaknesses and limits to die that he might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, the author of Hebrews tells us. Do you fear death? Have you ever lost sleep worrying about a a pain or a cough or a twinge or maybe something more serious? Death is coming. We all know this. It's inevitable. Your final day is approaching with inevitable speed. It could be today or tomorrow, a year or more, but it's it's coming. Does this scare us? We all have to face that enemy. I will. um, You will. Our loved ones will. I'm reminded of Rachel um, and her own struggle with that. She was full of faith and finished her race well, and yet there were still moments of fear. And I will have those, and you will too, which is fitting because death is terrifying. But Christ took on our nature, not because we are worthy of having God like us, but so that he might show his care and exaltation of us by freeing us from the fear of death, by his own death. You don't have to be afraid of death. Sure, when it's approaching, there will be moments of worry and moments of fear, Worrying about your family, your children, your grandchildren. There'll be worries about pain and discomfort. Um, There'll be worries. But you can be free from the overwhelming dread and the constant fear of death because Christ has died. The living God took on our flesh and he died, but he didn't stay dead. Instead, he showed us what awaits us all. 
a glorious resurrection, a conquering of death through death. You and I will die, but we need not fear death because it is defeated. And just as Christ became like us, brothers and sisters, we will become like he is. We will have life eternal and never die. We will be made perfect. And Christ shows us what we were meant to be as a sinless man and shows us what we will be like as glorified and resurrected men and women. And death need no longer terrorize us with its threats and fears. The worst it can do is bring us to our Savior who we love. And in time, we'll be raised. Christ became a human to die and free us from the fear of death because he cares for us. He took on our flesh and blood, became a weak, insignificant, small, limited human so that he might show his care for us in destroying death and Satan. And he exalts us through that by showing us that we will be like him one day, glorified, immortal, and sinless. He partook of our nature so that we can partake of his. The passage then goes on to dive deeper into the beauty of Christ's incarnation and death by explaining the priesthood of Christ. The priesthood of Christ. Uh, Priests in the Old Testament offered sacrifices and prayed for people. They taught the people. They helped the people with their spiritual needs. And the author connects this Old Testament office to Jesus and says Jesus comes as our great high priest to help us in our spiritual needs. In verse 16, I love verse 16. Um, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Just as the priests of old would help the people. He helps. What a a glorious thing that is. It's so obvious and so everyday that we can miss the beauty of it. Like sunsets or the the love of a spouse or the taste of Diet Mountain Dew. Or whatever drink or food you love. We can become so used to the glory and beauty and goodness of things that we don't stop to think about how wonderful something really is and specifically how wonderful something like this is of course jesus helps me duh of course he does we become so used so used to sweet lovely things that we forget about them and assume them take them for granted and they lose their wonder but stop for a moment and just think he helps and how incredible that is the god of the universe stoops to help you and me. He's not too busy with greater and weightier matters, or greater and weightier matters. He's not distant and uncaring. I'm reminded of something I read one time about prayer at football games, and someone had mockingly said something to the effect of, yeah, there are huge, you know, black holes and infinite space and trillions of planets and wars and oppression and revolutions and all this big crazy stuff, and you think God cares about how you play in a football game? You think he'll help you with something so small? Yeah. He will. God is infinite. He has infinite care and attention and concern. And he cares infinitely at every level, from subatomic particles to you stubbing your toe to wars to galaxies colliding. He cares. He helps. You're not a little kid annoying your mom or dad for their attention when they really want to focus on something more important than you. You are important to him. He helps as a priest would, and he helps specifically, the verse says, the children of Abraham. Real quick, well, who's that? Who are Abraham's children? Well, Abraham's children, the scriptures tell us, are those who follow in Abraham's footsteps of faith. The Holy Spirit tells us in Galatians 3, and verse 7, that know then that it is those of faith who are the sons 
of Abraham. Paul says elsewhere that we, the church, who are the true Israel of God, that we are the offspring of Abraham. Though we're not ethnically, physically descended from him, because we have faith, we are joined with our father, the man of faith, Abraham. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is saying he helps his people, us. He helps his people. And he doesn't help in nebulous or unspecific ways, like the friend who says he'll help you move but shows up late and just kind of stands around looking busy uh, while others do the heavy lifting. And we all know that person. We've all probably been that person at times and ways, just helping. Um, no, he helps us in real specific ways. Most notably, as the text says, by becoming our merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 17. He became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Like the high priest of old, he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a big word. And it's an interesting word. It's not one we use very much. It means to appease or satisfy the wrath of God. It's deeply connected to the idea of God's wrath. And maybe that's part of why it's not a word used very often anymore. We tend not to like to think of God as wrathful or angry. And even in this passage, it feels like a bit of an unexpected word, right? Like this passage is so richly and methodically lifted up God's care and mercy and faithfulness and goodness. And now suddenly introduces this word with inevitable connotations of wrath and anger. The author is not dumb or careless, and neither is the Holy Spirit. This word is very intentionally placed and used here by divine inspiration to remind us of who God is, to, to balance out what is being said to an extent, and to deepen the beauty of this passage. It reminds us of what we deserve on our own. Christ helps us with our spiritual needs as our priest, and our greatest and most primary spiritual need is for our sin to be dealt with. For God's wrath to be dealt with. We are sinners. As we confess every, every Sunday. As we are reminded of every day and every service. We have earned for our sin God's wrath. As Paul says in Ephesians. We are naturally before coming to Christ. Children of wrath. We deserve death and judgment and damnation. And you do and I do. The best of us do. The worst of us do. We're all on equal ground in our own works and righteousness. And that ground is cursed and condemned wrath. But Christ comes as a high priest to help us by dealing with this great issue, by satisfying the wrath of God against us. Some have wondered, and I've come across this question before, how, how sin could deserve infinite punishment of God, how sin could incur infinite wrath of God. Let's say I lived a very, very holy life and only sinned once in my life. Trust me, that's not true. I'm not claiming that. But for the sake of argument, let's say that's true. Is that one sin really enough for infinite wrath and punishment? It's a good question and one we run into often. And it helps us understand just how beautiful this language here of Christ being a propitiation is. So let's consider it for a second. Let's put aside the fact that this argument assumes people are going to stop sinning in hell. That's a big assumption. Um, if I go home this afternoon and I slap my dog Louise, what's going to happen? Nothing really. She'll get upset. I'll be prob I'll probably feel very guilty. I, you know, 
but that's about it. She'll whine and whimper. No one's going to do anything. If I go back to work in August and I slap a coworker, what will happen? Well, I might get slapped back. I might lose my job. I might be charged with a crime. Any of those things. If I slap the president or a Supreme Court judge or someone like that, what's going to happen? Well, then I'll certainly be arrested. I'll get charged with every crime they can uh, throw at me, and I'll be sent away for a very, very long time. All of that is the same thing, a slap. Louise, a coworker, Supreme Court judge or president. The only thing that changes is the power and authority and esteem of the being I slapped. Now what happens when I slap, sin against someone of infinite power, infinite authority, infinite esteem? That's why the author of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin because the wrath we incur by our sin is infinite wrath. And how many bull carcasses would you need to build a mountain to infinity? And how, many, uh, how much goat's blood would fill an infinite ocean? It's, it's pointless. The issue isn't the number of sacrifices. The issue is the value and worth of the sacrifice. They cannot satisfy God's wrath. But you know what can? An infinitely worthy sacrifice. A sacrifice of infinite perfection and infinite propitiation. And Christ comes not just as man, but as God in flesh. Infinitely worthy, infinitely supreme to make propitiation, to offer himself that satisfies, appeases, propitiates God's wrath against his people. And he helps us with a problem too impossibly great for us to even comprehend, let alone handle ourselves. And he doesn't just leave us there, though dealing with our sin is more than what we deserve. There's grace upon grace. He continues to help us in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help because he knows our weaknesses and temptations and sufferings intimately. You have a great high priest who helps you, and he's not a distant, inscrutable being who doesn't know what you're going through. He knows. He's experienced it. What can a being who needs no food and has never hunger know what it feels like to be tempted to be angry and short when you're so hungry? You ever been hangry before? You feel that, that desire to lash out because you just need food. You're hungry. Jesus knows what it is to feel hunger gnawing at his belly. He knows what it is to feel thirst. Remember on the cross when he cries out, I'm thirsty, I thirst. He knows tiredness. He knows family drama. He knows unfaithful friends. He knows arguing with stubborn, stupid people. He knows of work and money and travel. He knows weakness. He knows pain. He knows death. He knows what it is to live and die as a human being, and he knows how to deal with, with our condition in a perfect way because he did it. There's nothing that you experience that he did not apart from sin. Sure, the specifics may vary, but there is no temptation you endure that is not common to humanity. And he became human. He joined in our nature. He knows our struggles. Because of that, he knows how you feel. He knows how to handle it. He knows what you need, and he stands ready to help. We can go to him. 
The author is going to come back to this idea and develop it thir- uh, further throughout the book. And later on in Hebrews 4, he says something very similar. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And the big point, the takeaway from this truth is one of the most beautiful verses, I think, in the book of Hebrews and the scripture as a whole. The author says, you know, we have this high priest who can sympathize with us. In verse 16 of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, and how wonderful this verse is. Let us draw near with confidence, not weakly or timidly or fearfully, confidently. Again, you're not an annoying kid pestering your mom or dad or older brother for help with something that's beneath them. You're not beneath God's care. You're not wasting his time. You're not bothering him. You're an offspring of Abraham, and he helps you and cares for you and exalts you by saying, come into the very throne room of heaven, the place where angels cover their eyes and feet in humility. We're told to come boldly and confidently. We're to draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because there's a man on the throne. There's a human being sitting on the divine throne of grace in the heavenly places. One of us, a human being reigns in heaven over the universe. A simple, unremarkable human being is the king of grace and glory, exalted to the throne and crowned with glory and honor with everything in subjection under him. All God's angels serve and worship him. All galaxies bow down and all stars and planets give tribute. All kings and queens and princes and presidents bend the knee. All trees and rivers and mountains clap their hands. All lions and sharks and chickens look to him. And even the 20 quadrillion ants and the 225 gigatons of insects bow their heads. All things are under a human. Like you, like me. One of us reigns and he says, come to me. I want to help you. I know you. I'm one of you. I'm like you and you will be like me. What a marvelous high priest we have who knows us in our weaknesses and does not reject us, but rather says, I want to help you. To help you in your dealing with sin, to help you in your temptations, to help you with your needs. Our high priest helps us. My last point, as I mentioned, a short point, the pondering of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 1, the author writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This verse is the point of everything he said up till now. Everything in chapters 1 and 2 has been leading up to this moment. This is the crescendo of all the theology and glory of the last two chapters. It's what he's been building to. This is what he wants you to take away and remember and do from all that he's said so far. Therefore, consider Jesus. Now, for someone who wants a more practical application, this feels like a bit of a letdown. This big buildup and all this theology and glory and beauty, and the big sticking point is, 
consider, think about him. I mean, you've got me where you want me, man. I'm, I'm hooked. I'm tracking with you. I'm loving it. I'm saying amen. You can make almost any application you want, and I'm there. And you say, this? But oh, what wonderful this thing this really is. What a reminder of what's really important. The author could have said what many true and relevant and important things, and he will, and he'll get to those, and we will too in our next few sermons. Uh, but he very intentionally ends this section by telling us to simply consider, ponder, look at, think about, delight in Jesus. That's the point of all this. Look at him. Look at this beautiful Savior we have. Reminds me of someone upon seeing a great and beautiful work of art saying, okay, but what's the point? The point is the beauty. The point is the considering and pondering. Jesus doesn't exist as an end or a means to an end. He's not a stepping stone to something greater and better. He is the end. Considering him, pondering him, marveling at him, worshiping him is the ultimate point of our lives. Do you consider him? Do you know him? Do you discern him? In the midst of the busyness and craziness of life, do you stop and consider how supremely beautiful, how supremely delightful, how supremely marvelous Christ is? If not, this passage invites us into the consideration and pondering of our Messiah. To stop for a moment and consider him in all his glory and beauty, the Son of God and Son of Man, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who for our sake became poor and took on our nature to die and make a propitiation for our sin, freeing us from the fear of death by his death and resurrection, who invites us to come confidently before him. What a beautiful Savior we have. What a beautiful apostle and high priest of our confession. Know what a glory, wonderful thing it is to consider him. To not run first to the things we have to do or we have to fix, but to focus on him. Brothers and sisters, as we sing and pray and read, don't lose sight of him. Don't forget your first love as he chides one of the churches in Revelation. Don't get distracted by all the other stuff that is important and is good and is worthy of consideration, absolutely, but not at the expense of this great point. Consider Jesus. In conclusion, Christ has become like us. He took on our nature. Though we are weak and small and unremarkable, God cares about us and exalts us by humiliating himself and taking on flesh to die and free us from the fear of death. In his incarnation, Christ became our great high priest. He fully satisfied and propitiated the wrath of God against sin for us, and he sits exalted on heaven's throne over all things for us and invites us to come to him for help. God cares and gives us a great high priest and exalts us in that priest by lifting him to the throne of grace and inviting us into his throne room too. So let us consider this, our Savior, and let us ponder his beauty and majesty let us rejoice in his goodness and grace and glory together. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for all the beautiful and wonderful things you've done for us. We pray that your spirit would awaken our hearts. Lord, That we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see. We might behold wondrous things out of your law this morning from this book of Hebrews. That you would help us to know Christ's care 
and exaltation of us. She would help us to, to stand and stun disbelief that he would become like us. That he would know all the, the frustrating and difficult parts of being human and yet do it perfectly. Do it without sin. May we move to a greater reverence, esteem of his life, of his death, of his priesthood now. And may we draw confidently before his throne, knowing that he desires to help us. Lord, work this in us uh, today. In Christ's name, amen. Adam's going to come and lead us in communion.